So first and foremost. I think the the addition of pant leggings is really when you start to see your heroes get watered down. Can't even muster the ability to play straight pants that one. Uh, which is a good argument for absolute rulers. Everybody is going to get behind me. They're going to love me. And my support numbers will go through. When you hang out with the hero, it doesn't go well for you. My grandfather yeah. took the cop and just slid it right through the bar. Okay. And that became the dominant way our family did it. Okay. And so, <laughs> in both of my marriages, they were treated to that. Okay, wait, hold on. Yeah, rage haiku. How do you imagine the rubber chicken My grandmother actually vacuumed in her pearls. Oh my god, it all makes sense. We've had the sexual revolution. It yeah. might have just been a Canadian standoff. We're gonna go back to 9 11. Dude, get over it. Mm-hmm. Nobody understands what the building is supposed to be. Agra has no <laughs> business being that thick. <laughs> With the cultists win, we all win. history teacher up here in Northern California uh, with a side order of English, uh, currently uh, contractually unemployed. And um, I, yeah, I spent a significant portion of my day um, trying to uh, deal with uh, lawn maintenance now that I'm on uh, summer vacation. And um, I, I have some very uh, uh, theological thoughts about what exactly lawn maintenance involves and uh, how, how different groups of, of folks would, would approach it. Um, but um, I haven't quite codified it enough to make it an episode or to tie it in with anything nerdy yet. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, that's, that's what I've been working on. What are you up to? Well, I'm Damien Harmony. I'm a Latin and drama and U.S. history teacher uh, at the high school level up here in Northern California. Um, And uh, as far as what I've been up to, I've been assigning reading to my children because it's summertime and I am that dad. So uh, they are going to finish up what they didn't finish from last summer, which was uh, March. Uh, They call this enemy and barefoot again. And then they're also going to read The Jungle and Mouse. So that's okay. that's their summer reading. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that. In other news, uh, my children have both learned the neuter gender in Latin. Uh, and they're handling it with a plum. So that's pretty fun. Very cool. Yeah. So hold on one second. Cool. Made it work. All right. So when last we spoke, Yes. Uh, you had an outgoing Pope uh, with a 76 approval rating. 
Yeah. Uh, pretty good. Pretty good. Although uh, to lose nearly a quarter of, of the Catholics in the room when you're the Pope, that, that takes some doing. But um, it does. He's also suffers from the post John Paul II syndrome. You know, that guy was insanely popular. Like, I think I remember reading it. it he was at about like 87 percent when he died and at he least. died. Yeah. And so when someone dies, you tend to think kinder of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, he'd been at it, you know, like he was an institution in most people's lives. He was very good at the, the publicity, um, all of those things. And um, he just looked popey, you know, mm-hmm. and he, yeah. he was yeah, he, really he was what you pictured when you pictured a pope. Whereas, you know, Benedict, uh, he also he retired, which was, again, the first time in 600 years someone retires. So that's going to chip away at some people's approval. And again, he's not the last guy. It's it's kind of like when I have a substitute and I ask my students how the sub was and they go, oh, they were blah, blah, blah. And they're awful and they're terrible. I say, well, are they just guilty of not being me? Because that's not fair. Um, but, uh, you know, same same kind of idea. So, so, yeah, and I want to clarify, because mm-hmm. we talked about this in the last episode, uh, he was the first pope to relinquish his office since Gregory the 12th was forced to resign in 1415 uh, in order to end the Western schism. Uh, and he was the first pope to voluntarily resign since Celestine V in 1294. That's a lot of people that couldn't read the room and he clearly could yeah so. yeah so. <laughs> um now he did call himself benedict uh partly um i i found conflicting reports on that but one of them was it could have been a a subtle signal to the fact because the last benedict had been kind of a placeholder pope and who and had not served for very long and he yeah. was recognizing that he was also that guy could be he was in wrestling terms the transitional champion yeah yeah. Yeah, could be. So. Certainly could be. In 1936, Mario Berg oh boy, Italian name. I'm going to say Bergoglio. Uh there's a B E R G O G L I O. I'm going to say it's Bergoglio because that okay, seems yeah, like you might swallow right. yeah. one of your consonants. Yeah. Mario Bergoglio and Regina Sivori, uh who'd fled the fascists in Italy for Argentina in 1929, had their first child. What an unfortunate place to run to. Yeah, to get away like, from fascists. Like, well, you know what it is? It's like when you have allergies and you live in Boston and you move out to Arizona and then everybody in Boston likes the idea. So they come with you and they're like, you know what we need? Mulberry trees. Yeah. And they bring yeah. them all. And then you're like, Damn you're like why did you do this tree. to me? Now it's hot and there's mulberry trees. <laughs> there's mulberry pollen. Fuck so. you all. Yeah. <laughs> But their first child's name was Jorge Mario uh, Bergoglio, and he would be the oldest of five in a family of pretty good Catholics if he got five kids. Now, he ended up working as a food chemist in a lab, as well as as a bouncer in a bar during his early years. Living a fairly normal everyday life, he didn't feel the call to the priesthood until he stopped by a church for confession and found great inspiration with the priest there. At that point, he pivoted and became a Jesuit novice at seminary, who struggled with the temptation of the carnal uh, by at least one crush that he'd had on a gal. And he admitted to this pretty openly. Mm -hmm. But in 1960, Jorge took his vows of perpetual poverty, chastity, and obedience and became a full-on Jesuit. 
He got the equivalent of a master's degree in philosophy, so points there, and he taught at a Jesuit high school in Santa Fe de la Veracruz in Argentina and a private pre-12 Jesuit, uh, pre-through-12 Jesuit school in Buenos Aires. Yeah. Dude was a teacher, and I'm, I'm a fan of that. Um, now, while by all accounts, Jorge was an effective and good teacher, he yearned to learn more. So he dove back into his theological studies in the late 1960s, getting ordained as a priest in 1969. Again, he taught theology. And most of his promotions from here on out were to different professorships and theological studies. So whereas the other guy was very big on orthodoxy and journalism, uh, and I mean writing different journals and, mm-hmm. and, and that kind of periodicals, this guy is about the colloquy, the professorships. Mm-hmm. Now, he spent time in multiple European countries uh, arguing vehemently with Jesuits about matters of orthodoxy and liberation theology to the point where he was asked firmly not to live amongst his fellow Jesuits anymore. Hmm. And now minus Hmm. the not having sex part, he lived a life that I could say I would definitely have envied. Yeah. I can see that. Yeah. As the 1990s wore on, however, he started working his way up the chain, becoming the Archbishop of Buenos Aires. Now, as everyone knows, the Archbishop is somebody who is over a bunch of other bishops who oversee the diocese. Everybody knows that. That's common knowledge. Uh Uh-huh. So. Now, (laughs) after some people got schooled last episode. (laughs) So once in that position, Jorge worked really well to reach out to the poor more more Mm -hmm. specifically focusing on them. And he did other archbishop stuff as well, um, leading the anti-bodily autonomy for women initiatives and starting a commission on divorce. Uh, But he also did double the amount of priests who were going into the slums. And by all reports, you know, a really good way to fight against uh, the idea of abortion is to make it so that people have enough of what they need so that they don't have to consider such a decision. And he Mm -hmm. certainly approached it from that perspective, but at the same time, he is very much a Catholic priest yeah, or archbishop. So um, it is a construct in which he exists. Uh, You know, there's no really getting around it. I mean, quite honestly, I don't know if he would have advanced this far had he not been against bodily autonomy for women. Um, But there you go. And he started a commission on divorce, which again, he's seeing a problem. He's looking to solve it. But, you know, it, it's kind of like um, he's attacking the process so that the result changes. That's cool. Um, others would argue that perhaps that result's not really a bad one. Perhaps we should look at the, uh, the fact that people feel compelled to get married in a society. Um, regardless, um, he yeah. did. I mean, like, you know, yeah. Yeah. So regardless, he did, like I said, double the amount of priests who were going into the slums. Um and if if you're going to take this on good faith, which I assume you would, and I will, um, he was doing good things for people by sending priests to the poor. Now, others would argue that that's the last thing they need. And I could honestly very much understand that argument, too. Now, he really seems to have taken the poverty thing very seriously by making sure that he disaggregated the Buenos Aires church from investment banks to force better avoidance of financial excess as well as a compassion for the poor, starting weekly foot washings. Mm -hmm. And that was a big thing for him. Like from early on, he was big on the foot washing thing. Now, if I recall correctly, 
A woman wept on Jesus's feet and washed it with her hair first. And then at the last supper, he washed his buddy's feet. Yes. I think those were the only two times where foot washing is mentioned in the, yes. in the gospels. Yeah. Yes. And it is a common practice in uh, many dioceses mm-hmm. uh, that during Holy week, there is a uh, ceremony mm. Uh, during which uh, parish, uh, the pastor of the parish and the bishop of the diocese um, wash the feet of members of the community. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some cases, there is a very specific point made. I know in the last two parishes that I've been in, uh, rabbis from uh, local Jewish congregations. Mm-hmm. Are are invited oh, to cool. participate, and there is there is washing of of their feet nice. as as part of that. Cool. Um, and it you know the the symbolism of Christ doing it is if if you want to be a leader, then you have to be a servant um, and take care of those who who are in your you know the, the people that you are that you want to lead you need to help yeah basically. i you know i also i think that there's i mean first off there's as as the the prophet bono said if you want to learn to fly better uh if you want to kiss the sky you better learn how to learn fly how to kneel on your knees boy yeah um and he you know and and so there's there's an inherently per se humbling aspect to washing someone's feet you are literally prostrating yourself is that the word yeah Okay, you're With literally prostrating. Yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I kind of want to start a church that goes the other way. Uh, <laughs> church um, of Dionysus, baby. There you go. We there we accept are. all bums, uh, <laughs> <laughs> even the whiny bums. Uh, <laughs> Mad Dog 2020, <laughs> sacramental uh, beverage. <laughs> but uh, you know, like uh, they prostrate themselves. In front of a person, they are literally lowering themselves to serve the person in front of them. And if you make sure that that is a person of lesser means, you're kind of doing like what uh, what what Jesus said in the in the in the, the Gospels. So that's yep. pretty cool. Um, symboli- symbolically, as well as have you ever had your feet washed? A couple of times. Okay, shit feels wonderful. Like don't it though? I went to a massage place once. Um, an actual legit massage place. Uh, yeah, but, yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I didn't give you the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But yeah. Um, but I went to a massage place once, and that was their first thing that they did when you got there. And I was like, oh my god, this place is amazing! Like it, yeah. it. Oh, it's, oh yeah, it's wonderful. Um, with with my wife, uh, a couple of times she has insisted usually at the beginning of, of every summer and and mm-hmm. this summer is no exception uh in a couple of days we're going to be going and doing this uh she insists that if i'm going to be walking around in public with her wearing sandals pedicure time i i have to get a pedicure oh wow that's sweet <laughs> and uh you know part of it is it's an excuse for her to get one sure. uh, but but no 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 i i need to get one um, which, and she's not wrong because I, I, I got some, I got some ugly feet, but um, I get it, man. I ignore what I can't see. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. That's what it comes down to. So. Yeah. 
And so, uh, but yeah, having, having that done, I, I have a really, really strong tickle reflex. Ah. So it's really hard for me uh-huh. to have somebody else scrubbing my feet. Sure. Sure. Like I feel bad for the people that do it because right. I'm a twitchy wreck <laughs> and I work and I'm working so hard to just like relax, just, you know, let hang the foot out there just sure. leave it there. But yeah, no, I, it's, wow. it's difficult. Yeah. I've never had a pedicure, but I've, I like the idea of a, of a date wherein y'all get pedicures. That's, that sounds good, man. You know? Yeah. Like no, yeah. It, it doesn't suck. I will no. say. So, yeah. So, well, uh, I, I like the idea also of Jesus being a tickler. <laughs> Peter was a stickler. Yeah. Jesus was, yeah, a, tickler. was a tickler. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, and, and I can, I can see that as a matter of fact. Yeah. Just, hey, Thomas, tickle, 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 tickle. Yeah. So, <laughs> so when Pope John Paul II died, uh, no, actually in, in 2001, uh, uh, Jorge was made cardinal. Um, He refused the ornamentalism that normally accompanied that position uh, prior to him uh, in Buenos Aires. Uh, He continued to live in a small apartment. He took public transport and he cooked his own meals. Uh, These are often very little things, but they really resonated with the folks there. And I would like to point out here, he didn't subscribe to the same cult of poverty that Mother Teresa had. Um, I have big problems with her. And I will admit that up front. And, and I, I do say that she instituted a cult of poverty. And I think it was abusive and, and manipulative. Mm, okay. Um, I, he didn't you're seem not going to get much that. in the way of argument from me yeah. on that. He, he didn't seem to do that from what I could tell. He wasn't fetishizing it like she did. Um, now, when Pope John, the Paul, John, when Pope John Paul II died, um, Jorge was considered briefly uh, and early on as a front runner for the position. I didn't get the Vegas odds on him for that particular time, but Benedict uh, won it after about four votes. Yeah, it was a really. It was a quick selection uh, process, too, wasn't it? Yeah, well, it depends. Depends on how you want to define that. There have been some of them that have gone to a whole lot of ballots. Mm hmm. And there have been some of them that have been decided pretty quickly. That mm-hmm. one is on the quick side, but mm-hmm. it it was also I remember I I mostly remember as a you know new convert. Uh, well, as somebody who was who was in the process of of going through CIA at the time, um, there there being a certain amount of of nail biting over Mm -hmm. you know how many times are they going to flip and do this like come on (laughs) um and how much of that is me and how much of that is you know that number of votes being a thing i don't know sure sure um but yeah so it yeah no it's right because you don't want to balance you don't want to send the message that like we chose it ahead of time so you can't do it on the first ballot yeah you know but you don't want to make god wait so (laughs) well the 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 belief Mm-hmm. dogma within within the church is that um the the ultimate goal is to have the ultimate selection be one that is guided by mm-hmm. prayer and the intercession of the holy spirit sure um and depending on your attitude toward things you you may or may not look at Ratzinger's election to the papacy 
as being entirely guided by the Holy Spirit, and you might look at it as being they kind of they kind of tripped over their own feet and and there was politics involved. Yeah. I'm just saying. Sure. For some sure. people, yeah. That might be an argument. Well, while he was cardinal under Benedict the seventh the sixteenth, Jorge also insisted on an investigation into the members of a junta who'd murdered three priests and two seminary students during Argentina's Dirty War of 76. Mm -hmm. During that Dirty War, by the way, it should be noted that Jorge was never in favor of, nor in cahoots with, the dictatorship. Did he stand bravely in front of armed soldiers and challenge them to uh, to turn their guns into plowshares, protecting young girls and boys from their would-be ravagings? No, no, he did not. But neither did he collaborate with them at all. Most of the accusations that came out against him afterward, post-1980, were that he didn't do enough and that he could be ta- and that could be taken as tacit endorsement. But I spent a few hours on that very issue and it feels like folks are carrying water with a sieve there. There is a bit of truth to it, but it does seem to also ignore the larger context of the time. The junta was relatively popular to the majority of Argentina and their awfulness wasn't known to many at the time. And still Jorge did not climb aboard despite their being in power. Could mm-hmm. he have done more? Sure. Uh, he, he has said as much, and he has anguished about it publicly for a long time. But oh, this yeah. feels very similar to the they thought they were free aspect of things. Like where we want to say that they could have done, done more too. Mm-hmm. But the fact is, most folks did what they thought they could at the time, Jorge included. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's like people, I would have helped Harriet Tubman. No, you wouldn't have. Because you're not no. helping kidnap people now. No, you so, yeah, you yeah. you wouldn't have stood up to internment of Japanese Americans, right? You you wouldn't have been marching with with Dr. King, right? No, so stop it. St- still, yeah. or perhaps because of what he saw as his own failings, Jorge got more vocally aggressive with those in power in Argentina. When President Kirchner came to Jorge's mass in 2004, Jorge let him have it with both barrels. He delivered a mass that specifically requested that the government listen to its critics more, not follow the rest of the world when it came to increased intolerance, and do away with overblown rhetoric. The next year, President Kirchner did not come to his mass. (laughs) uh, Kirchner's wife succeeded him as president, by the way um because that actually happens sometimes and she was elected and he became the first uh first man of the country um because of course that happens at the top levels of power in this hemisphere jorge called on him on her to stop fighting against the agrarian strikers in argentina and he stood against her support of same-sex marriages you can't win them all no you can't uh quote this is this is from jorge In the coming weeks, the Argentine people will face a situation where outcome can seriously harm the family. At stake is the identity and survival of the family, father, mother, and children. At stake are the lives of many children who will be discriminated against in advance and deprived of their human development given by a father and a mother and willed by God. At stake is the total rejection of God's law engraved in our hearts. I'm going to stop there for just a second. I want to go back to the part where he said that there is a... discrimination in advance you probably wouldn't have that if you didn't have a church standing in the way saying yo don't let the gays marry you'd have a lot less of it yeah yeah so yeah 
I'm going to go back to his quote. Yeah. He says, he continues, let us not be naive. This is not a simple political fight. It is a destructive proposal to God's plan. This is not a mere legislative proposal that is ju- that's just in its form, but a move by the father of lies that seeks to confuse and deceive the children of God. Let's look to St. Joseph, Mary, and the child to ask fervently that they defend the Argentine family in this moment. May they support, defend, and accompany us in this war of God. End quote. He did just say that Satan is involved, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. And that did. this is a war of God. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. God, God lost, just like against Vince McMahon and Shane, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Um, in July 22nd, 2010, same sex marriage became legal in Argentina. I did some digging on this one. Argentina was the first Southern Hemisphere country in the world to do this. The second Western Hemisphere country to do it. Uh, The first, I think, being Canada or Cuba. I forget. And the 10th worldwide at the time. I want to say Canada was the first one. I think you're right. Hemisphere. Yeah. Cuba, just in the news, just to date this a little more, just in the news, Cuba is doing like this radical restructuring what it means to be family. And it is the most progressive liberal definition civilly of family. Yeah. For for policy, for policy purposes, benefits, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's remarkable. Awesome. Um, It's too bad they're so backward that they can't, uh, you know, be a first world country. You know, what with their... um, yeah what what is it that they're doing that we're what are we doing better oppressing cuba (laughs) yeah there's yeah well so let's move on to 2013 jorge gets elected pope um is elected is that the right word yeah no it's an election amongst the cardinals all right uh he became the first latin american pope and the first one to be named francis yes yes now just real quick I, i would like to back up just so that you're seeing where I'm coming from. Okay. Yes, I tell jokes. Yes, I, I want to still be funny, but I think my jokes so far have been not poking fun at the institution beyond the institution itself. I think I've, I've have I been poking fun at the institution beyond it? Yeah, no, yeah. yeah. I've, I've been fairly, fairly, um, I'm not going to say reverent because I'm not, but uh, no. I haven't been irreverent toward it as far as I can tell. I would, I would, I would say you've been a little bit irreverent, but you haven't been mean. There you go. Okay, that works. So yeah. I will go with that. So okay, uh, that's why I asked about the elected part. Yeah. Um, so he's also the first Jesuit pope. Yep. Um, he's also the first pope in 1,100 years to not take a prior name. Yes, this is true. The last one to do so flew the Millennium Falcon. <laughs> <laughs> okay yeah pope there lando there yeah. was a pope lando i found did, in yes. the 900s yep um he was like uh you know so you know how um rutherford b hayes and uh william uh henry harrison's uh, nephew benjamin or uh, grandson benjamin harrison and yeah. james garfield and, and chester arthur they're all kind of just these kind of forgettable presidents yes the 900s was like the forgettable popes <laughs> like there you are find a lot like, of periods there are a lot of yeah. periods in history that are forgettable popes well um, like i found and, the only record i found of pope lando was something from the 1400s that referenced something he did in the 900s 
Yeah. And I'm like, wow, dude, like y'all don't <laughs> just keep a list that you like write their names on or something. The Romans for, did shit. For, for a very long time, mm-hmm. the job of the Pope mm-hmm. to a certain extent was to be was to be a caretaker and not do anything that got your name, oh, wow. you know, in the history books. Okay. You know, because, sure. because, you know, the, the idea was continuity. Mm-hmm. The idea was, you know, defending the, the faithful okay. or, or mate, you know, and, and status quo was and, what was, what yeah. was sought and, and you, being you, interesting you, times kind of fucking sucks. Yeah. So, okay. Basically. Fair. Um, and, and like, you know, we remember the popes who did big shit during that time period. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, Gregory, mm-hmm. uh, you know, being one of the first that comes to mind, you know, who essentially asserted papal authority in a big way, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and then others after that, you know, Leo, I want to say the 10th. Uh, you know, throwing such lavish parties that that he, you know, drove a German priest to complain about the way he was raising money for it. Right. Which, you know, led to the fracturing of Western Christendom, <laughs> you know, so yeah. like, you know, you can either be forgettable or you can be that guy. Yeah. Like, yeah. let's let's look at, you know, which which one do you want to emulate? Sure, sure. Uh, you know, and and now of course we're living in a very different time. Yeah. Uh well, because so we, yeah, we're very much more cult of personality. Very much more. And and there is society in general is changing at a much faster rate. And so popes become memorable for not not changing things as fast as we would like them to. Right. Uh, we meaning society at large and a certain subset of Catholics. Hi, how you doing? Um, you know, and sure. you know, but there was also, but kind of, kind of the flip side of that is there was also a time when literally everything the Pope said was ex cathedra. Which meaning meaning would the, piss the everyone is, off yeah well the pope is the pope is speaking from the seat oh okay uh, yeah yeah and and when the spoke and when the pope speaks ex cathedra he is speaking as god's representative on earth and is therefore incapable of being in error just want you to know how hard i'm biting my tongue right now i know i know i, I know because the skit that's coming into my head i know <laughs> so but but since yeah since i don't know the now that we have 13 mass or 1400s yeah too. since the 13 or 1400s yeah. uh the pope does not speak ex cathedra very often right uh jp2 put out a couple of very important for for church policy and kind of kind of teaching uh, reasons he put out a couple of encyclicals mm-hmm. uh, that really solidified the church's position on things like in vitro fertilization, birth control, abortion, all of that kind of right, stuff. Right. And the thing is, those are treated as being doctrine. Yeah. Because yeah. the Pope put it out. 
but if if somebody was really going to be an enterprising uh canon lawyer they could point out well he didn't say it ex cathedra okay yeah so 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 it's kind of that that has as a tool used to be ubiquitous now that's softened yeah and so but at the same time there is an understanding of you know it's kind of like the rules that i keep in my house like yeah i don't have to yell every time yeah oh yeah yeah and um so you know there's 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 the issue of ex catheters there's also the fact that you know if you think about in the 900s and especially in in the high middle ages Mm -hmm. you have very notable circumstances of excommunication being something that happened like you know every every couple of years true very true. You know, some emperor or some king that the, the Pope said, all right, no, you know what? You're excommunicated. Fuck. You. If anything happens to you until, until you get right with the church, anything happens to you, you're going straight to hell. Right. You're not getting buried in a churchyard. Fuck off. Right. And, and that was, that was the, the big hammer that got Holy Roman emperors to, you know, walk barefoot through the snow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> in a yeah. very big, you know, public show of contrition. And you don't see that very much anymore. It was, it was well, because really, climate change. Well, number one. Yeah. Uh, number, you know, but, but recently it was a really, really big deal. Yeah. Uh, in, in certain circles here in Sacramento, um, there was actually, uh, a priest who got very close to getting himself excommunicated. Wow. Um, for being a hyper conservative uh, and refusing to follow the instructions of the Pope and I'm going to get to that actually. And the Bishop yeah. in regard to COVID. Oh, is the okay. one is the one I'm talking about. Okay. Yeah. Um, There's some so, doctrinal stuff that I'm going to close oh, yeah. with. with oh yeah. With this. Okay. So, so anyway. instead of taking Pope Lando II, which would have been the coolest name, <laughs> the only thing that might have been cooler than that is as if he would have taken the name Clement, because Clement the Fourteenth was a Franciscan who specifically repressed the Jesuits. And I'm petty. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, all right, I can see that. So but instead. He went with Francis. He went with Francis because Francis of Assisi was down with poverty, and yep. and he's 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 hanging with that. So yep. he's also continued his efforts toward the poor, eschewing a lot of the wealthy trappings that uh, he deemed excessive and not very Jesusy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he went on to continue washing prisoners' feet, specifically kissing them and mixing in men and women when he did so. Uh, He also did this to Catholics and non-Catholics alike, including Muslim prisoners. Francis has continued much of the same focus that Benedict did, by the way, but his trappings and rhetoric are different. So from a policy perspective, I didn't find too much difference with with a very important exception that I'll come to. Um, But he speaks with a lot more latitude toward grace, especially toward those who differ from the Catholic ideal, including we non-believers. He spoke much more certainly against sexual abuses as well, which is nice, um, even holding multiple summits on the subject. Now, again, I'm going to come back to policy. Has much shifted? I would argue no. But the, the cosmetics of what's going on 
have shifted. And it could be that you do have to go outside in for this to work. Um, and there is something to be said for the symbolism of simply changing those things. I absolutely, absolutely think so. Uh, but, but this is an ongoing theme that I'm going to point to. Okay. The the one, the one thing I'm going to say in response Mm -hmm. as, Mm -hmm. as a believer Mm -hmm. is um, you, you as a historian and Mm -hmm. as, and as somebody who knows a thing or two about Rome, yeah, particularly having, having, you know, taught Latin for as long as you did. um, The, the (laughs) inertia Mm-hmm. is is a defining characteristic of the catholic church yes and for those of us within the church a change in tone is monumentally important because we know that it's going to be it's it's going to take decades or centuries for anything policy-wise to change concretely yeah and and i think uh, a way to think about it is is like he is a rudder on a really big ship yes so you won't see his changes potentially until the end of his tenure or two or three down the road yeah yeah uh now when covid broke out pope francis actually canceled oh by the way he's not pope francis the first either he's pope francis Yes. Um, you uh, don't become the first until there is a second. Until there's a second, which is wild. just like but there is sense. John. John of England is not John the first. Right. Because he was so shitty at the job. There's never been a John the second. <laughs> now, he actually canceled public gatherings to hear him speak, but he also chastised his priests who closed their churches. Mm-hmm. Um, given that he did this when things were just underway, I'm going to give him a bit of grace for that bit of ignorance. Um, and he encouraged his priest to go and visit the sick. So he is, he's erring, I think, but he's erring on the side of compassion. Like his heart's in the right place. His imagination is a bit lacking, but let's be real. Everybody at that time, very few people were like, oh, this is exactly how this will work. I completely. So yeah. Um, what I did like, though, that he uh, told them, he's like, straight up, do not forget the marginalized members of your flock. Still, Italy needed to lock the fuck down and it didn't. So his criticism doesn't really sit well with me, considering how many how many corpse vans came through towns in Italy, specifically mm. Italy. Now, Francis did come out in favor of vaccinations, too. So he said flat out, it's a moral imperative. So that's also pretty cool. Further, he's opened up certain positions to women in the church, which hasn't been done before. Also cool. Now, again, I would say much of this is surface level stuff. If you look at the policy, he hasn't changed much in the way of the policy in terms of like the real, like he has not replaced a cog with, you know, uh, uh, I don't know how that metaphor works, but you know, you know what I mean? Like he's not, he's not doing core yeah. changes here. Um, yeah. it doesn't have to, but I, I just, when people are like, Oh yeah, th- this guy's awesome. Let's go Francis, mm-hmm. you know, keep in mind th- how much is really changing there. Now yeah. he's also told pre- priests and bishops to chill the fuck out about queer folk, 
about abortion and about contraception. However, policy hasn't shifted yet that I've seen. He's still in favor of separate but equal when it comes to gay marriage, saying, quote, that way they are legally covered. This is okay. I'm breaking in here. That's fucking awesome that he recognizes there's a secular world that people will live and die by. I love that. And then he comes, you know, and then and here's more that I, I dig, but it still comes down to separate but equal. But he does say that way they are legally covered. They're children of God and have a right to a family. Nobody should be thrown out or made miserable because of it. All of that's awesome. All of yep. that's rad as shit. He stops short at policy. And I understand. I completely understand, like you said, inertia. But hmm. the Vatican later said that that quote was two different quotes taken out of context and smushed together. So, God damn it. Well, okay. So now that's the so, Vatican. <laughs> yeah. In, inside baseball. Sure. Um, one of the issues that has plagued Francis from the day he took office is Ratzinger installed a whole bunch of people yes. into positions within the Vatican who are hyper-conservative. The guy was... Boy, does this the, sound familiar. The, yeah, the guy was the pit bull of orthodoxy. That was his nickname. And so there are there are elements within the Vatican that Francis doesn't have the power to fire mm-hmm. uh, who are not on board with his hippy dip agenda of, you know, uh, of saying uh, that they're people too. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and again, so, in, in that world, yeah. he's getting credit for bare minimum shit. But I, yeah. again, it, it's still better than rat fucking yeah. everything. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, he's never been officially in favor of same sex marriages. So again, no. I'm going to call out policy versus rhetoric. And he even told parents of LGBTQ kids to show them love and not the door. Pretty damn cool. Still no policy shift. Um, he did straight up apologize in 2018, uh, to people who were harmed by his support of Baros. Uh, Baros was a child predator who was a bishop who covered up the abuses of others. Mm-hmm. He was like, I fucked up. I'm sorry. Yes. Now, when he sent out his tradition, it's called uh, the, I'm going to say it in Latin because it is in Latin, uh, traditionis custodes. Mm-hmm. Um, his intent was to stop having two different types of liturgy in the church. Now, since Vatican II's creation, there was a massive back- backlash against it by subsequent popes. John Paul II and uh, Benedict specifically trying mm. to keep papal supremacy by not criticizing the reforms, but by allowing and encouraging workarounds for conservatives who just didn't like the idea that people would actually know what the mass said. Francis yeah. sent out a letter specifically stating that no, stop it, especially the Tridentine mass, which was exclusively in ecclesiastic Latin and he said, you need to get on with on board with what reforms Vatican II was trying to do, which is often called the ordinary form. He yep. said, no more half measures, no more. Well, you know, you can have it on a special thing. No, in many ways, it actually reminds me of variances within a contract um, where he's like, no more variances. This is the thing. Vatican II is liturgy. Va- Vatican II is canon. What's the word I'm looking for? Well, Vatican II is 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 uh, dogma. That it's established dogma. And he's it like, is, no more is, of this workaround bullshit. Yeah. 
none, none of this, none of this, you know, cheating shit. Um, and now I'm trying to remember when it happened. Uh, that was in 2018 that he did that. Okay. So now, I, and prior I will say to that, I, I will say oh, okay. that to me is policy shift. He gets credit yes. for that, that he yes. absolutely, he's, he's, you know what it is? That's policy cleanup. He's mm-hmm. like, no, unless you want to, unless those guys wanted to say old Pope was wrong, which you can't. Y'all because, need to step up. The thing is, because the thing is, it wasn't just the Pope. Vatican right. II is the name of the council. It was, right. It was the second Vatican council. Right. When was the first that one? Was, that was, oh. 333? Something like it. Yeah. Well, that's the Nicene Council, right? Uh, well, no. Okay, there's another one. Uh, Nicaea, Nicaea was at the town of Nicaea, which right. is Greek. But but the the Vatican first Vatican Council I don't remember how long but it was a long time ago, and the second Vatican Council was a council of bishops that was called by the Pope at the time and my godmother is going to be so mad at me that I can't remember his name. Mm-hmm. Uh, before he was Pope, his name was Brancali, um, who who called them all together because it was like okay no look we've moved into. A whole new century. The world has changed, and and we as the church need to meet parishioners where they are. Oh, that was uh, Vatican One, right? That was. I mean, they didn't call it that because you don't get a. It doesn't get called Vatican One until Vatican Two. Until happens. Vatican Two happens. But that was but, like. I, I want to say that was like either right after or right before the Golden Spike went in. Something, yeah. Something yeah, it was like, like yeah. the late 1860s. I, I remember. Yeah. I remember that. So that would have been Pius the. Not the tenth, because that was Hitler's pope. Um, yeah. Pius the ninth. Sounds about right. Yeah, I, I. There's a weird thing in my brain where I remember that council and the spike mm-hmm. because because the spike joined the country, mm-hmm. even though the Vatican Council was not about America. It's not. Like, yeah, it was like yeah, whoa, no, the late 1860s is about bringing shit back together. That's mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah. Um, so yeah. so the second Vatican Council, uh, October 1962. Uh, by John the Twenty Third, John the Twenty Third. He, yeah, he's uh, the one that didn't last long. No, he didn't last long. He had cancer, as I recall. And right. uh, JP John Paul the Second took his papal name partly from John the Twenty Third as an indication that he was going to be a a continuer of his legacy. Right. But so the Second Vatican Council essentially had had a whole bunch of stuff to say about reform of the experience essentially of being catholic Mm -hmm. and um of making the mass accessible to the people the people to to the vulgate yes (laughs) um and and it was it was essentially you know we're we're going to translate the mass into the languages of the world right um because previously it had all been done in latin up until you know 63 64 when the when the council ended i do love that a jesuit is specifically going no no more just latin (laughs) shit no more of that no (laughs) yeah it's like yeah yeah, that's your bread and butter buddy but okay cool yeah yeah um and so the thing is ever since john the 23rd called the second vatican council there has been a faction within the church 
that has argued Sede Vacante, which is the seat is vacant. Mm-hmm. And and depending on how wingnut you want to go, right? they're either anti-reformists or they are full on like, no, there has not been a legitimate pope since the guy before John the 23rd. Right. Uh, which is wild which oh it's nuts and and when you want to talk about people getting excommunicated by the way Mm -hmm. in the modern era most of the folks who wound up getting smacked on the on the hand that hard are i'm just going to say it cultists who are are insisting that you know the 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 seat has been vacant since prior to john the 23rd right uh, that's some know, like they've been, John they've been Birch, hyper day shit. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. So, so anyway. Yeah. Well, it's a good thing. People that believe in that shit tend to go into the CIA and FBI in, in way out of proportion numbers than <laughs> to other, uh, it's good times. Uh, yeah. At least they're sticklers for procedure. I don't, eh. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, Legalism. hella cardinals, hella priests and hella bishops and others wrote in criticism of Francis which was much more loud and public and ubiquitous than when popes were only from Europe. Some of that can be attributed to a mass media culture. Absolutely. They've had Twitter since 2013, I want to say. But also, there's a weird rejection of Francis as the pope going on there, too, akin to what you're talking about with John Paul or with John the 23rd. Mm-hmm. Um, it's especially worthy of note since a vast majority of Catholics are on board with the Vatican II version and not the Tridentine version. Um, And this gets at the heart of why I think that Francis is a far less popular pope among Catholics than any other pope in recent memory. He only carries a 60% approval rating amongst Catholics in the 2010s. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Joseph Shaw, the Welsh head of the Latin Mass Society, said this in a blog. And of course, he starts it with a word that has a lot more consonants and vowels. Staggering document, exceeding our worst expectations. Pope Francis has completely undone the arrangements of Summorum Pontificum and crested a situation which seems entirely unworkable, banning the extraordinary form from parish churches. That's some cheeky shit right there. And I don't, I didn't see that much critique of benedict from within the church i saw it from without the church but from within the church there has been a upspring of people thinking that they can they can be writing about about pope frank that way mm-hmm. yep nope. as a result heretics. yeah heretics well, well Burn that, them the fuck all that Burn could them. be one way um i'm I, you know what i'm yep. just going to my roots this is my heritage <laughs> this is what we do no, no. i hate Um, (laughs) as a result of this many bishops and priests especially in america uh, are making decisions that run counter to what the pope the head of the whole church is mandating so now people are like nah not my pope um his liberalizing of the church in key visible ways is more than enough to sour people's opinion on him despite francis's efforts to largely carry on with what the deeply entrenched policies that haven't really been changed that much from John Paul II through Benedict XVI through nope. Francis. It's not enough to simply carry on the policies, though. It's what people see that matters. And even though that sounds like I said papal see, I didn't. Um, 
but I find it fascinating that he's he's really just kind of changed the color of the trim and included a, a rainbow flag in the front planter. And people are like, that's not my subway. Um, <laughs> now, if you want to yeah. understand why this has been happening specifically since Francis took over as Pontifex Maximus, we need to understand a few things about television. In January of 1999, HBO launched a new drama that would be at once less visceral and more violent than Oz. The Sopranos' original pitch was that Tony Soprano was a crime boss in an Italian northern New Jersey crime family who starts getting suffering or who starts suffering panic attacks because the family of ducks who'd nested in his backyard had left for good. And since you can't look weak in front of those under you, he goes to a therapist in secret, played by Lorraine Bracco, who played. Um, Karen in Goodfellas. Okay. And with this at as the foot in the door with an amazing cast, The Sopranos became a hit that was so much more than the patient-therapist relationship. James Gandolfini was able to balance the vulnerability and anxiety that his character had with the menace that his character required. It took two years to get it on the screen, but once it finally hit, it hit big. According to the president of original programming at HBO, Chris Albrecht, it was because Tony Soprano is, quote, turning 40. He's inherited a business from his dad. He's trying to bring it into the modern age. He's got all the responsibilities that go along with that. He's got an overbearing mom that he's still trying to get out from under. Although he loves his wife, he's had an affair. He's got two teenage kids, and he's dealing with the realities of what that is. He's anxious. He's depressed. He starts to see a therapist because he's searching for the meaning in his own life. I thought, the only difference between him and everyone else I know is that he's the Don of New Jersey, end quote. So it's very relatable, but with a hell of a quirk. And that certainly was an early lure for a lot of people. Now you add that, uh, add to that the excellent production value and tremendous acting, and you've got yourself one hell of a hit. But what really made it popular from 1999 to 2007 was its moral ambiguity and its darkness. We don't want to root for Tony, but we want to root for Tony. Mm -hmm. And that contradiction, rooting for a man who orders murders, struggles with finding meaning in his life, has affairs, deeply loves his wife, and has to deal with the consequences of his actions, makes us wonder to what extent he'll have to pay for what he's done. 12 million people a week watched on premium cable because Tony Soprano got away with being bad and normalized our darker selves. Tony Soprano was very was a very, very human character who had deep flaws. Some of them were recognizable in ourselves. He is overweight, he's uxorious, and he doesn't like his work. But some of them were monstrosities. He kills people, he assaults people, he extorts money from people by threatening to kill or assault them. There's no denying how real the characters are. They're not one-dimensional cutouts. They're real, they're always flawed, but they have complex internal lives. They are characters that are human. That said, several organizations took them to task repeatedly for negative Italian stereotypes. And understandably so. Yeah. Sopranos is also a dark underbelly of the American dream. And just like Scarface, the American dream gone rotten, people missed the goddamn point. Or rather, they got the goddamn point. 
Show creator David Chase wanted a show that challenged and trusted the audience to rise to that challenge, and he saw moral ambiguity as the linchpin to doing that. Now, in 2002, The Wire debuted, again on HBO, and again an East Coast crime-based drama. This time, though, it's a Western. Well, it's not really a Western, but it's, it's, it's hella a Western. David Simon and Ed Burns wrote a series that explored five different subjects, that were impacting people in Baltimore. The same problem from five different perspectives, ultimately. Illegal drugs, the port system, the city government, public schools, and print media. Those were the five seasons. Okay. And you had characters weave through them. Now, Ed Burns was a former homicide detective and a public school teacher, so you know it was going to be very, very bleak. <laughs> David Simon said that he'd set out to write, quote, a meditation on the death of work and the betrayal of the American working class. It is a deliberate argument that unencumbered capitalism is not a substitute for social policy, that on its own, without a social compact, raw capitalism is destined to serve the few at the expense of the many, or I'm sorry, at the expense of the man. How does this not sound like Sopranos so far, right? Simon was very clear about his intent. He said, quote, we are not selling hope or audience gratification or cheap victories with this show. The Wire is making an argument about what institutions, what bureaucracies, criminal enterprises, the cultures of addiction, raw capitalism even, do to individuals. It is not designed purely as an entertainment. It is, I'm afraid, a somewhat angry show. Okay. So the, the Wire's first season was the illegal drug trade, and it followed several characters, but centered on those in charge of the Barksdale drug cartel and those trying to catch them. A fox and the hound kind of structure. Mm -hmm. So the police were problematic individuals with some serious demons, violence, ambition problems in their closet. The drug dealers were actually sometimes more honest, but just as complex. They killed and dealt drugs, but they were also sympathetic characters with their internal struggles. Some had guilty consciences, some had personal struggles, some were kids. And weaving through it all was a character named Omar Little, uh, who made this whole thing into a Western. So at this point, I have to ask, have you seen The Sopranos or The Wire? I have seen bits and pieces. I okay. have not actually watched either series all the way through okay one of my one of the bits i'm i i know and am enamored of from mm -hmm. the wire is at one point and i don't know which which season or how far into whichever season it is mm -hmm. that it happens a whole bunch of the of the gang leaders mm -hmm. get together and and i think it's it's omar little has decided we're no we're we're going to run this all like like a business we're going to handle this professionally we're going to be organized and all this and one of his underlings um and and he he runs he runs the meeting according to i don't remember whose rules of order but basically robert's rules of our order yeah essentially yeah. robert's rules of order and and at the end he looks over at one of his underlings and he says what what the fuck is that and his underling says, I took notes. The, the rules of order says that you're supposed to take notes. Did you just take notes on a fucking criminal conspiracy? So that's not Omar Little that, that okay. was running that meeting. That was, okay. um, oh God, I forget his name now, but the, the well-dressed uh, partner of the Barksdale gang. Okay. Um, uh, played by Idris Elba. Oh, okay. 
Yeah. Oh, awesome. All yeah. Right, cool. I, unless I'm blending characters again, but okay. Idris Elba played the the legitimate face of the Barksdale gang. Okay. So. <laughs> Yeah. No, Did you uh, just take uh, notes on a criminal <laughs> fucking conspiracy? Oh, I love it. Uh, so, Omar was a stick-up man, actually, in the area, and he was the bane of the Barksdale drug gang. Uh, okay. he, he literally wears a duster, and he whis- whistles the farmer in the dell uh, as he's hunting down drug dealers. He's so very menacing that people will literally shout his arrival as they flee the area. He is what Boba Fett could have been. Um, okay. He is a stone cold killer with a moral code that is so intense. Um, he never harms innocent people. He dislikes swearing. He speaks in the third person and he's compelling to watch. And perhaps the most compelling parts are that he tends to his grandmother with care and tenderness, and he's a gay and gentle lover. Wow. Yeah. All right. The audience is fully drawn to this uh, this Baltimore African-American Boba Fett, um, despite or maybe even because of all the violence that he carries out with a ruthless cleverness. He regularly will set up his quarry chase them down, accurately predicting their moves and their choices ahead of time, uh, and then finally trapping them, all the while whistling the farmer in the dell. That's actually fucking spooky. Oh, it's awesome. It's awesome. Okay. He, that that actor does such a good job with that character. Now, the other four seasons certainly weren't a discussion, but I'm trying to draw a pattern here, so I'm just sticking to the first okay. season. Um, now, so that's that's so that's two TV series that we've seen so far. Um, okay. And I think that takes us up to the first one starts in 99. Second one starts in 2002. This next one starts in 2004 and it's HBO again. So we're seeing a pattern here. HBO yeah. keeps having these kinds of shows. This time it's an actual Western. You may have heard of it. Little show called Deadwood. Yes. Have you seen that one? Uh, yes, the first, okay. first not season. the whole series, but the first okay. season. Yeah. Okay, so uh, I'll I'll stick largely to that first season because it, the the character I'm about talked about. Now this was def- definitely set in a specific time and place, uh, yes. and it dealt with real historical people. As such, the amount of creative license was necessarily less. However, David Milch still managed to make very memorable characters. The show lasted for three seasons and followed Seth Bullock, a lawman trying to turn businessmen to Deadwood, South Dakota. This town doesn't actually have any law to speak of, which is why people are going there. Um, The series goes from camp to town and all the various and sundry that comes with such a growth. The main two characters aren't so much juxtaposed as they are forced into a conflict by the circumstance of being there. And of the two, it's not the lawman turned businessman who's the more compelling character. That doesn't mean we don't follow Bullock. We certainly we do. He beats a man terribly who has it coming for threatening his own daughter's safety as a means to extort money from a, a, a claim. Um, but that's just it. The former lawman is doing the right thing. But it's not the lawful thing. Mm-hmm. The character that we actually are drawn to follow, the one that the show turns into being about, is not Timothy Oliphant as everybody expected it to be. He is, after all, the prime mover in the show. 
Yeah. But there's a guy who's staying put in Deadwood who suddenly everything starts to orbit around him and people are much more interested in seeing him. And that's Al Swearingen. He runs a brothel and a bar. In many ways, he is the only law in that town by virtue of the fact that he has hired muscle who commit unspeakable brutality on his behalf, including murder. And Swearingen is as abusive as can be. He gains more and more centrality to the story as the show wears on, including several heartfelt profane as hell monologues at the end as he's being filleted by the new prostitute that he employs. And the amount of pathos that he puts into that, it is, it is disturbing mm-hmm. um, to see a man go through this emotional roller coaster while being blown by somebody who doesn't really have a choice in the matter. Mm-hmm. Technically, she does. She's an independent contractor, but he owns her contract. Like it's all kinds of awful. Yeah, um, Ian McShane yes. is the is the actor who who portrays Swear Engine. Yes, and um, he is fucking brilliant. Yes, um, he my in 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 my own family. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ian McShane is best known for the uh, kind of detective series uh, that he did for the BBC a bunch of years ago when he was much younger mm-hmm. uh, called Lovejoy. Okay. Uh, in which he played a mostly reformed art forger oh, okay. um, who, who was investigating crimes related to that kind of world. And um he he was always charismatic um and had a gift with with comic timing but could also play very very straight and as swear engine it was like all of that like he had he had grown into his powers like a dragon over the ensuing years wow and it was just yeah so yeah he's an amazing actor and swear engine is an amazing performance by him yeah in the first season alone, Swearingen uh, smothers a minister to death. Yeah. But it's a mercy killing because the minister has a brain tumor that's destroying the man that he is. He engages another person to kill a man who's trying to extort him. Swearingen and Bullock actually end up in a physical fight after Bullock becomes the law that takes them over the side of the second story balcony. And Swearingen nearly slits Bullock's throat, but thinks twice about it when he sees the arriving uh, wife and child of Bullock. Eventually, the two of them call a truce, and Swearingen gets into a shooting feud with George Hurst, who's actually a much worse man than Swearingen, setting up Swearingen as the one that we're sympathetic to. uh, Because he murders Cornish miners for trying to unionize. So I'm sorry about the spoilers to a show that started in 2004. Yeah, I know. Al gets a finger chopped off by Hearst's goons. Bullock actually arrests and publicly humiliates Hearst, who then hires a bunch of Pinkertons, so you know he's a bad guy, uh, to to wreak havoc (laughs) in the town, and he manipulates the sheriff election and has people killed. Now, at this point, Swearing Jin is kind of the hero, until one of his prostitutes, Trixie, seeks revenge for uh, for the murder that Hearst ordered, but she misses her shot and she does a clever thing. She knocks on his door, draws her pistol and then pulls down her pants and pulls up her top so that he sees boobs and Bush. And then she shoots him and she misses. Uh, She hits him in the shoulder. Um, 
The result is, though, he never really saw her face. So at this point, in order to draw a truce, and Hearst says, you know, I'll, I'll leave, but you have to execute the whore that shot me. Swearingen then says, fine. And he murders another prostitute who looks just like or who looks enough like Trixie in the hopes of passing off her corpse to Hearst so that he leaves. And it works. And that's how the series ends. Nobody was good. Most people were really bad. And yet we end up sympathetic to the one who, from the very beginning, was an unapologetic bastard. But he's got a moral code because he's scrubbing up the blood from the woman that he murdered. So to recap, Hmm. 1999, 2002, 2004, all started with shows on HBO that had us following a dark, gritty, morally ambiguous story and protagonist, all capable of and having carried out horrific violence. Okay. Now, Genji Cohen created Weeds for Showtime. Finally, we break the HBO pattern. Uh, and it aired starting in, starting in 2005. Now, she pitched it to HBO, but they passed because they're like, well, we already have like these really good shows. So it came to Showtime. And Weeds took its inspiration directly from The Sopranos. This time, though, it was from a middle-class woman's perspective. Suburban, newly widowed woman who sells drugs to keep their upper middle class lifestyle intact, complete with conspicuous consumption, still being the goal. The opening credits are actually set to a very specific song that critiques the upper middle class lifestyle called Little Boxes by Malvina Reynolds, which was first performed by Pete Seeger in 1963. Uh, But this version is actually performed by Locke Lomanwich. Uh, but Malvina actually, uh, recorded it in, I think 68 herself, but by then Pete Seeger's version was supreme. Mm -hmm. Um, she wrote the song in 62 as a folk song and she was a folk singer songwriter who was also a political activist in the sixties and seventies, according to her daughter, Nancy Reynolds. Um, Nancy said, quote, my mother and father were driving South from San Francisco through daily city. When my mom got the idea for the song, she asked my dad to take the wheel and she wrote it on the way to the gathering at in La Honda, where she was going to sing for the Friends Committee on Legislation. When Time Magazine wanted a photo of her pointing to the very place, she couldn't find those houses because so many more had been built around them that the hillsides were totally covered. The song is like the antithesis of Nothing But Flowers by the Talking Heads. Uh, little boxes on a hilltop all made of ticky tacky and everyone the same that's the one you know it's funny my parents referenced that song because uh, they lived in one of those houses ah. in Daly City during no one of shit. my dad's uh, uh, assignments in the Navy oh, he was probably in Alameda at the time yeah I think so yeah, yeah. and um, uh, yeah and, and they remember it uh, being done by Tiptoe through the tulips. What was his Tiny name? Tim? Tiny Tim. Oh, okay. On a ukulele. Little boxes on a hilltop. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I've, I've grown up not actually having heard the song, mm-hmm. but knowing of it because of that, because of that cool. reference. Well, so, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. 
well, this show is about the descent from grace that the main character, Nancy Botwin, experiences when her husband drops dead of a heart attack while jogging. There were definitely a family based around conspicuous consumption, just like the song speaks of. Tons of style, very little substance. Now, in order to keep that lifestyle after the loss of her husband and his income, she starts dealing weed. She eventually see the show's titles, Weeds, right? Weeds, yeah. But also weeds are like the most, they're going to grow where they're going to grow. They're the most hardy yep. plant. So it's, you know, several, several meanings. But um, she eventually develops a front line or, or a front rather for her business. She creates her own strain of weed. She moves her family around to keep them safe. Uh, so this is, she's got the tiger by the tail, right? And again, she is one of many very well-developed characters who are deeply flawed and very relatable as a result. She's trying to raise two troubled boys after her husband's death, and she's navigating increasingly treacherous social situations and the PTA. In short, the mundane... The most treacherous social situation of (laughs) all. The the most dangerous predator of them all. But in short, the mundane is shown on screen, not just as the part that hooks us in, just like Tony Soprano, just like Omar. I find it interesting that there's an element here of a fall from grace. Tony Soprano, mm-hmm. by the time we see him, he's he's fallen. There is no, but there he's is no suffering grace. for his fall. Okay, and, um, and and his fall is completed by those birds leaving. Okay, and he, that's why he has okay. to go to therapy. Okay, Al Swearingen didn't fall from grace. <laughs> like, no, he was no. just in the muck. He was um, just yeah. You could say that Omar didn't either, um, but but yes, I think I think Tony and Nancy, there absolutely is a fall. Okay, I can see that. Yeah, but it's it's interesting that 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 is a more how to put it uh, the the poetry of that is more mm-hmm. obvious. Yeah, in the portrayal of her character. Yeah. Yeah, you I, know, think so. as, I think it's gendered too. I mean, yeah, oh, you have hugely, a woman whose whose expectation was that her husband would take care of her, and now yeah. she has to turn to illegal shit. Yeah, enter into commerce like she's stepping outside of the private sphere. There's a lot of stuff going on there, and I would say that all four of these characters um, are shown with their mundane shit getting in the way of their lives um, to such an extent that it humanizes them for all of us. Uh, She's got PTA meetings. Omar has um, relationship struggles. Uh, Tony, absolutely. I mean, his mom henpecks him. Al has a kidney stone at one point that dominates the the, the story for him for about two or three episodes. Um, So to recap, in 1999, 2002, 2004, and 2005, all the all these years started with shows on either HBO or Showtime that had us following a dark, gritty, hidden underbelly, morally ambiguous story and protagonist, all who were capable of and having carried out either directly or by proxy horrific violence. And I think that I want to save Mad Men and. Uh, what is it called? Um breaking breaking bad, bad uh I for the next we to break oh bad. the the title like, holy shit yeah yeah okay but i i think i want to save those two for last because i do like the idea of pairing those two together okay so, um so 
that's that's I think where I'll stop. Um, so we are in again the mid two thousands. It's two thousand seven where we're going to pick back up next week. Okay. So and again, folks, if you've listened this far, you didn't take my advice. That was at the end of the last episode. Binge these together. Listen to this one yeah. and the last one uh, together, and then wait two weeks and listen to the next two together as well. It, it'll work better. This yeah, might end up so. turning into a five-parter because of where I'm stopping. But okay, well, okay. we'll see. Yeah. So anyway, all right. Uh, you 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 figured out the plot early on last time. <laughs> um, yeah. So so have you gleaned anything further? Since? Um. I think not not really anything terribly new, though I think there's a shading involved in in who it is that we're that we're looking at as the maybe not the hero, but who it is who it is that people are identifying with. And mm-hmm. part of it, like I said at the last at, at the end of the last episode, part of it is cynicism. But wrapped up within that mm-hmm. is a certain level of bruised idealism. I agree that completely. that you know, like uh, the the Omar Little character in mm-hmm. in The Wire, what you describe about you know the the side of him that is humane, the side of him that mm-hmm. is tender with his mother and the side of him that has to deal with relationship issues, mm-hmm. you know, and the vulnerability involved there is a really interesting counterpoint mm-hmm. that I think points to the bruised idealism at the heart of every cynic. If that yes. makes sense, the way I'm saying that. Yes, and I, I think again, you are you are remarkably prescient with with your analysis here. <laughs> uh, we're going to get into that very specific thing because I think bruised idealism will lead to aggrievement. Okay. Yeah, and that will lead to some very dark places. Okay. So yes. All right. All right. Uh, so uh, anything you're reading this time around? I'm anything, going anything to... you want to recommend. I'm going to double down on my recommendation of the caves of steel by Isaac Asimov. Okay. That's um, uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Caves of steel. Um, because that's, that's preparation for what I'm going to be doing next. Uh-huh. Um, and, and also because it's, it's a fascinating example from the early days of, of science fiction as a genre of, science fictional elements being used to tell what is basically a murder mystery. Mm, okay. Um, so yeah, I, cool. I highly recommend you do that. Uh, check okay. that out. Um, okay. How about you? I'm actually going to recommend something. Uh, I'm not going to recommend any books. I'm going to recommend two pieces of media. The first one is on TikTok. If you have TikTok. Go to TikTok and type in Corey Berenger, C-O-R-Y-B-A-R-R-I-N-G-E-R. He's a local Sacramento comic um, who uh, his brand of comedy is sweet. Uh, He is madly in love with his wife, who is uh, a nice lady. And he has plenty of just wonderful, sweet content. But lately he's doing something that is like 
you know how like Prairie Home Companion is just kind of like not even Cracker Barrel comedy, just sweet comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, he has this series called Does It Dunk? And you you type in ideas of things to dunk. Um, nice. And, and what they should be dunked in. And so, you know, he he uh, took a, a bis- biscotti or Biscoff cookies and dunked them in an iced chai latte. Okay. And he tasted it and was like, does it dunk? Uh, somebody suggested he try a hot dog and a frosty. So he does. Uh, there's just, it's, it's just delightfully fun. And he is such a sweet, sweet man. Um, it's, it's really quite a brand. Um, and he's, he's just, he's, there should be more people like him in the world. Okay. So I'm going to suggest that. Now, the other piece of media I'm going to suggest is an album by a group called Windborn, born with an E at the end. Uh, and it's an album called Of Hard Times and Harmony. And I found their songs uh, quite uplifting, quite interesting. Their lyrics are, are very, very dynamic and uh, very worker-oriented. Um, and they harmonize quite well. And I loved listening to them during the strike. So okay. I'm going to recommend Windborn Of Hard Times and Harmony. You could probably get them on Indiegogo uh, if you want to throw them some money uh you definitely should um so yeah check them out so that's what i'm going to recommend cool cool um as always you can find uh me at da harmony on twitter and instagram da harmony one on uh uh tiktok uh if you missed the august 5th show uh for capital punishment then you can always go to the show in september it will be the second friday of september because uh, Labor Day is is we try to keep that holy. Um, also, people just don't come out to that show. Yeah, well, there's that. Thing. No, it's a uh, practical issue. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, you can come out to Capital Punishment at Luna's if you're fully vaccinated in the second Friday of September. Um, you can find my partner here at E.H. Blaylock on the Twitter. Um, yes, at sir. Mr. Underscore Blaylock on uh, on TikTok. Yes. Um, and I forgot the Insta, but that's okay. Meh. Yeah. So, and you can find us collectively, collectively. Um, at geekhistorytime.com. This is the 2020s. You don't need to put www dot in front of anything anymore. Um, Unless you want to. Yeah, I mean, if you like, really, you know, yeah. if you're going to do that, go ahead and hit that HTTP colon slash slash while you're at it. Yeah, you know. Hey. Uh, kick it old school. Uh, Boot up your Netscape and uh, see what you can do. <laughs> Go to town. <laughs> so, uh, so do that. Check it out. Uh, check out our website there. Or you can always find us on the Apple app, uh, the Apple podcast app, uh, yep. and on Stitcher. Uh, just look yes, for sir. A Geek History of Time. Hit that subscribe button. Give us the five-star review you know that we deserve. Uh, and I think I covered everything there. I think you did. Go me. Go so you. For A Geek History of Time, I'm Damien Harmony. And I'm Ed Blaylock. And until next time, keep rolling 20s.